You know, if you really design for the root causes of incarceration, if you really focus there, just like we've learned in health, um, I'm not so sure you're really going to need them very much. Hi, I'm Matt Watkins, and you're listening to the New Thinking Podcast from the Center for Court Innovation. What if we could use the principles of thoughtful, human-focused design to roll back this country's reliance on prisons and jails? That's the intention of my guest today. Deanna Van Buren is an architect and the co-founder of the Oakland-based Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. Deanna's mission is to use public interest architecture to counter mass incarceration and to promote the use of restorative justice. Among her many projects, she designed our Near West Side Peacemaking Center in Syracuse, New York, the first institution of its kind in the U.S. Deanna, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Matthew. So I thought we'd really start out with sort of a big picture question, and it's sort of a way for me to understand how it is that a design firm sets itself out to end mass incarceration. And I wanted to know, what, what do you see when you look at the, the, the design and the physical space of our, um, of our current justice system, courthouses, two prisons, however you want to answer that? You know, when I used to look at a lot of these spaces, you know, from, from the point of view long before I ever started to do this work, you know, I, they were mostly scary to me. I find them intimidating. And as a architecture type, they are representing the values of that system and in many ways are intended to intimidate um, and to represent power and the power dynamics of that system and the hierarchies of that system from the courthouse with, with its big masonry buildings and judge on the dais higher up from other folks and the separation of, of the adversarial parties. I mean, it very much represents what that system does and what it was made to do. Prisons and jails obviously uh, intended to promote security and some kind of uh, punishment for actions. And it does it all. They all do that very well. And they are, I think, ineffective um, in so many ways and make people really scared and stressed and intimidated and really worse for the experience of being in them. So it made little sense to replicate that or, or begin to uh, rethink architecture within the context of the criminal justice system that we know. So if we're not replicating that, then what do you see, what, what are you kind of um, proposing as, as a counter model to this monumentality that you think is more striking fear than respect, it sounds like. It it was always a little hard to initially rethink what, what justice might look like if it didn't look like that. I mean, the and then it was also hard to think about how to work within the system because the system, as we've come to learn through movies like 13th and the new Jim Crow, is pretty structurally racist. And so as you start to navigate it, you're really working working within a system that's built on the, the foundation of slavery and built on the foundations of Jim Crow uh, and then built on the foundations of the war against drugs, which was very much uh, about race. So it was very hard to participate for me in that system. So I think that the real breakthrough was to understand that there were other systems, um, an old system and and really, it was this this idea about a restorative justice philosophy, uh, restorative justice practice that sort of opened the door for me as an architect and designer to be like, oh, well, well, this system is something that I could design for. This is a system that has kind of gone unnoticed for a long time and is becoming reignited. And how could I, as an architect, a designer, uh, amplify 
the impact and expansion of this other system, this old system. And do you want to explain a little bit for people who might not be as familiar with the concept what restorative justice means for you and how it can provide a solution to some of these problems that are so entrenched, what you're talking about, the new Jim Crow, for example, these kinds of things? Sure. I mean, restorative justice and its its primary definition is what it really means to me is that it's a, a philosophy that says, you know, when a harm has been done, it is essentially a breach of relationship. You know, it is not a crime against the state or the people who've been harmed and meeting their needs is the top priority and that those who have committed uh, the offense have an obligation to make amends. They're accountable for those actions and that, you know, there is a way, a practice where those parties can come together uh, along with anyone else who's been impacted by the harm and have a real open dialogue that's supported and facilitated so that together, you know, they can create a plan for those who did the harm to make amends, uh, something that they both agree on with the hope that that individual can repair uh, the relationship and repair the community, repair the individuals uh, that were harmed so they can, you know, stay in their community and and be unstigmatized if possible. So that's kind of a, a very radical departure from the foundations of the punitive model. So for me, that feels sustainable and it feels more based in human nature and much more natural and organic because I don't think justice can be blind and, and certainly there's no objectivity in, in harm that we do to one another. It's very personal uh, and it's very rich and diverse and varied in its reasons and its causes. So how do we take these principles of restorative justice and start incorporating them into you know, blueprints and, um, and, and concretely, literally, into design choices? What's great about the project um, that I did with the Center for Court Innovation was that it allowed us the time and space to investigate what that does really look like. Uh, we were able to work with you all in the community uh, in the near west side and run peacemaking circles that I used to get design input. So I got trained as a circle keeper and I ran circles around a set of images and ideas around spaces that may, made us feel comfortable. Syracuse, like a lot of our uh, post-industrial cities, is in severe decline because there's no jobs there. And so it's very economically depressed and you, you know, in the near West side, you see a lot of homes that, you know, are boarded up or, or there's not a lot of commercial activity there. And yet it's a very culturally rich community, very diverse um, people from all over the world, a lot, a large immigrant population there. Uh, they, I know that there's extreme poverty in the community, which has been really a struggle. And then, you know, the associative sometimes violence that goes along with that especially when you have a lot of people coming together in a small space or small community with little resources. So it was a, a great neighborhood to introduce peacemaking into. And oddly enough, wasn't far from downtown and all of the courts. So yet it felt feels far, you know, it feels like it's not close. So the folks we were running circles with were from a range of ages and ethnicities, different kinds of jobs and, and brought their families. So it was very rich. So these are, when you say circles, we mean uh, peacemaking circles, a form of restorative justice, correct? Correct. And so what was the goal of the, of, of the, the project as a whole, the, the peacemaking center? 
Well, the Center for Court Innovation had, had come in to bring Native American peacemaking practices into a non-Native community for the first time, both in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and then, of course, here in Syracuse, the near west side of Syracuse. So they're training elders in the community to be peacemakers, um, you know, meeting with the DA and the prosecutors to train them on how to divert cases, quality of life crimes, I believe in particular, out of court and into these Native American peacemaking processes. So while they were they were doing a lot of training when I started, and I was able to incorporate my design process into that. So while they're doing trainings, I'm running circles with the community around what a space for peacemaking should look like. Where should it be in the community? Because it's location matters. You know, what are the aesthetics of it? What kinds of spaces should be in there? Because it's not a building type that we have. And we learned a lot. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you learned and how that informed some of the design choices? The first uh, piece we learned is that, you know, the location of peacemaking needs to be in, in neutral territory. You know, you can't put it somewhere where one part of the community feels ownership or if, if there's a conflict or something happens with someone from another part of the community, that they're not going to feel safe or comfortable going there. Everybody has to feel like it's a, a place that they can go. And that's very real in, in communities all over the country. We've, we've seen that issue over and over again. So neutrality. Uh, is critical. I want to get a site that feels like uh, it's a place everyone feels comfortable with. You know, some of the things that are ideal and what, you know, the Near West Side Peacemaking Project has is outdoor space so that there's um, always a connection back to nature. We've done a lot of research in evidence-based design and healthcare and educational settings. And we know that having views to nature, um, of course, being in nature, but just seeing nature uh, can reduce your heart rate in less than five minutes. So it calms you down. So uh, as you're going into a stressful process for most like peace building, peacemaking, you really need to have as many natural elements in and around the peacemaking center as possible. You also, with an outdoor space, can have a place to have circles outside. You know, unlike a court process, you can have peacemaking anywhere, really. You can be outside in a garden or under a tree. And as long as there's privacy, which is another thing we found we needed, uh, you can do that. Um, the peacemaking space is not something that people felt you should just be able to stumble into. It should be supported and surrounded by other spaces, particularly uh, chill-out rooms. We, we discovered the concept of the cool-off room or the chill-out room. Where if you need to leave the circle, uh, having a place to go for a little bit so you can return in a, a calmer state if, if necessary. It's important that people don't feel trapped and they have a sense of where they're going. You know, so the idea that you would have walls that might be translucent rather than opaque, um, but also allow, so light can penetrate, but you can't see through it. So it gives privacy, but a sense of uh, permeability. Um, we learned you have to have a kitchen that is a core uh, space in any peacemaking center uh, as it's part of the process. And it also makes people feel like, like they're at home, which was another aspect of peacemaking. You know, this sort of uh, quality that you're walking into a space that feels familiar to you. It's striking to me listening to you how much everything you're describing is precisely the opposite of a typical courtroom or certainly carceral environment. Yeah, very true. So, you know, there are not much lessons to be learned in our criminal justice architecture. And so this was a starting from scratch. And I think that what's amazing is people kind of knew what they needed. 
it wasn't like, you know, we described the ideas and you're meeting someone who you've harmed or, or someone who's harmed you. You know, what kind of environment do you need to do that? And these were the things that came out of it. And we did a lot of site observations and we've talked, we talked to other communities and, and other processes, similar processes, and kept just kept getting the same information over and over again. You also, I think, do a lot of work inside of uh, prisons, workshopping these ideas about restorative justice and the kind of design choices that go with it. And I'm wondering what you learned from, from that process. Yeah, we've done that a lot. Um, and it's been really, it's been amazing. I, I have learned so, so much from working with them. Often we'll work with them around a specific project for them that they'll get on the outside. And I think what has been challenging initially, and I think people think is think that we're working with them to make a better prison. And that's always a hurdle with our work is really trying to explain to them and to others, we are not designing better looking prisons or prettier boxes to incarcerate people. Uh, the folks who are incarcerated, 95% of them are coming home and all of them know what supported in, in them ending up there in the first place. So they are really smart about what kinds of architecture they need to successfully uh, re-enter, uh, what kinds of uh, environments they would have needed to not ever come in the first place. And they designed some really brilliant things, things I had never thought of and many of them are very, very familiar with restorative justice and really deeply understand it and are able to create images of places that uh, really facilitate restorative justice. And I, I'm wondering as well if you're following at all the, the debate about uh, Rikers Island here in, in New York City and this proposal to uh, replace Rikers with a, a series of, of uh, so-called 21st century much smaller uh, borough-based jails. I'm wondering, I know you're not in the business of designing or trying to improve upon jail design yourself, but um, if you had thoughts about what's happening here with Rikers. Well, you know, there was something really interesting uh, when I read the Lipman report. You know, the Lipman report was the report that came out about, you know, we'll close Rikers, here's what we should do. That report, uh, in the first half of that report, I noted, I think, three to four new building types that they identified that would need to be created to really reduce the population of Rikers. And then the second half of the report elaborates on and really goes into the different kind of jail they were going to need. And I thought to myself, if you've identified three or four new building types in the first half, just briefly, why don't we focus on those and build those? Because if you did, maybe you really wouldn't even need those jails at all. And so, I, again, I, I see this constant focus on redoing the jail when even in people's own language and thinking about how to reduce the population, there's this whole other infrastructure, like I believe drop-off centers was one of them, where if, if, if you identify someone who is has ment as mentally ill or has a, you know, is with the mental illnesses, which is often the case with a lot of folks and a lot of reasons that people end up incarcerated, this would be a drop-off center where you could bring people because they don't need to be incarcerated. They actually just need, you know, some help. So what do those look like? I would love to design one of those. I would love for us to be focusing on designing those rather than this other focus. So I feel this is an error in where we get lost. Well, I guess it speaks to how the how much the jail model obviously is in, entrenched in how we think about justice. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to imagine. Like, you know, if you really design for the root causes, 
of incarceration, if you really focus there, just like we've learned in health, I'm not so sure you're really going to need them very much. You're not going to need a whole bunch of little small community jails. You're going to need this whole other range of, of building types that would really heal people and be of service to people in the community. And I think there's a ton of them to make. We get calls every day about stuff that we're, we're going to need and we do need. I could make a whole list for you. It's just sad to me that, that the focus is always on this better jail, better prison, because there's so many more things we need to be making. Well, Deanna, I've really enjoyed uh, learning about your work and your philosophy very much. And, thank you. And I want to thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. I've been speaking with Deanna Van Buren. She is the co-founder of the Oakland-based architecture and development practice Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. You can find out more about her work by looking at the show notes for this episode. Our theme music is by Michael Aron at quivernyc.com. I'm Matt Watkins, and this has been the New Thinking Podcast from the Center for Court Innovation. Please consider giving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. Thanks for listening.